Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the University of Sydney. Um, I'm Jared Goggin and it's a real pleasure to uh, be able to moderate the event tonight um, on behalf of Sydney Ideas and the Walkley Foundation uh, to talk about journalism's new bottom line impact. But first, before we start the proceedings, um, I wanted to just acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And so as we share our knowledge and ideas um, tonight, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. We're really um, honoured and delighted tonight to have two um, terrific and, uh, guests to join us um, to, to talk about this topic. What we're discussing tonight is the examination of the brave new world of public interest journalism, uh, where, as we say in the byline, the bottom line is less about dollars and more about impact. Um, and it's my pleasure first to introduce Robert J. Rosenthal, um, who's currently visiting Australia. Um, and Robert uh, is really a distinguished journalist uh, and someone who's been working in this area for quite a time and now for the, the most recent uh, years undertaking some really cutting edge experiments in this area. He's the former editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer He's the managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. He's an award-winning journalist and editor of some of the US biggest newspapers. And he's gone on to run the not-for-profit Center for Investigative Journalism. Taking it from a staff of six and budget of under a million dollars in 2008 to today's award-winning award multimedia public service news organization with a staff of 70 and a budget of over 10 million annually. So Robert, welcome to the University of Sydney. Delightful to have you here. And so, uh, in conversation with Robert tonight is Alice Brennan. Alice is a multimedia investigative journalist with specialist skills in politics, in law and in business. And she's covered and investigated significant international news and current affairs for Australia, US and international agencies. And she's the Pulitzer Prize winning executive producer of ABC's back background briefing. So Alice, welcome also to the University. <laughs> So I'll just I'll segue across to sit between Robert and Alice in a moment, but just so we will have the opportunity to hear from both of our guests to open up the discussion of this issue and then we'll uh, be able to uh, hear from you to be able to hear some questions and to have the conversation continue. So let me segue across and so we can start. Can I add a little clarification in my bio? I was part of a Pulitzer Prize winning team. Oh, there you go. Wasn't me. <laughs> it was a collaboration. Still impressive, <laughs> but thank you for the correction. Um, so look, to start with, uh, Robert, if we might ask you to just, um, to tell us a little bit about, I suppose, um, your formation and what, what drives you, uh, what, uh, I suppose, underpins your passion in terms of journalism. And how has that come, I suppose, to where you've been in the last few years and where you are now in terms of trying to forge the way around public interest concepts of journalism? Uh, it was fun. 
Uh, I liked action. Uh, no, I, I really, I, I started as a, what's called a copy boy at the New York Times a long time ago, and some of you may know what the Pentagon Papers project was, uh, which was New York Times investigation, and it was this, about the secret history of the Vietnam War. And it uh, also won a Pulitzer Prize, but it really led to Watergate. And I was 22 years old, and I was actually part of the team. We were dealing with uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of top secret documents. And uh, I got a phone call one night at home, and the editor said, uh, come to room 1111 at the Hilton Hotel tomorrow. Don't tell anyone where you're going, not even your mother and bring enough clothes for a month. And I went to the Hilton Hotel the next day and knocked on the door and the editor said, you can stay here and work on this. It's really important, uh, but we all may be arrested. So this was an early version uh, you know, of, of what became WikiLeaks, but it was the secret history of the Vietnam War. So I was 22, it became known as the Pentagon Papers, uh, and it was a huge story in the United States. The Nixon administration stopped, tried to stop publication. But what it meant for me was at a very early age, I was taught about the role of uh, journalism in a democracy, especially investigative reporting, standing up to power and risk. And in my career, uh, I was fortunate enough to do a lot of things and also became a top editor. But I really honestly and truly believe that, uh, and from an American perspective and a global one, that one of the things that stands up to the worst regimes is the press and journalists and people who are willing to stand up to power and challenge it, and historically, people who are eliminated, who do, are frequently the first eliminated by the worst governments and tried to be silenced. So to me, it's a passion. Uh, it was never, for, and if any of you are journalists or want to go into journalism, it's not about getting rich, it's about, you know, if you're a creative person, storytelling and really making a difference. So it's driven me my whole career, and I've had the good fortune uh, the last 10 or 11 years to really build an organization, help build an organization that is based on sort of those principles and about really making a difference in society. And we call it public service or social justice journalism, and I can talk more about it. But that was you know, how I got to the Center for Investigative Reporting. And along the way, I also got sacked, as you guys say, from being the number one editor at a very big paper. So I got caught in the corporate wars and sort of understood what it meant to be in a model where the number one priority was revenue and profit versus the service part. So in the states where we have different tax laws, people will actually support what we do. As you heard, you know, we've gone, we've, I've raised or helped raise probably 70 or 80 million dollars in the last 10 years specifically for investigative reporting. So it's a big difference in terms of your tax laws, but it's, it's, it works. So, could, I mean, was there, was there a particular set of events that sort of precipitated that move out of what you were saying, you know, that... Corporate media? Sad, well, I got fired, which helped. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I worked at another, I went from Philadelphia, which would be like going from Sydney to Perth, I guess, to San Francisco, and uh, was the managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle and really just got fed up with corporate media because you, they were risk adverse and every time you wanted to do something different, the first question is, where's the revenue, or how much will it cost, and where's the revenue? So the model we help create is really based on the quality of the work and making a difference, and we can get into more details, and the people who fund us are not looking for anything but helping society. Mm. And the range of things you can do from an individual you write about or report on who may be in jail for things they didn't do, 
to human rights abuses, to environmental issues, to corruption in government, was what I, we do, but also across, you know, create an organization that tells stories across every platform. So it's a really different collaborative model. Uh, this year we had an Oscar-nominated short doc about the heroin epidemic in the United States called Heroin, and we had a Pulitzer Prize finalist for an investigation about prisoners who were being taken and doing work for corporations and not being paid. So the range of things is broad. So at the time you embarked on that, did you have some sense that this could be done? Or it was a, it was a kind of gamble? It was a gamble. It was t desperation. Uh, no, I mean, we did a lot of amazing things, but it was really because we didn't have the resources to do them otherwise. So we tried different things. And when we started doing it in 2008, people said, you're crazy. But now everyone's doing them. So and a lot of that's around collaboration and, and, you know, we were just talking earlier where we had six people turning something, a deep investigative story, into an animation that went, you know, viral on YouTube and won in the States one of the highest awards you can get for video, an Emmy, uh, things like that. And also being in a culture where everybody, from the, the person who answered the phone to the top editor, everybody was sort of had want to tap into their creativity in their own lives. So it's a very different sort of team-oriented culture. Uh, it was a real different model. It was, and it was, you know, it was in a way it was born out of desperate, you know, you had to try things. Amazing paradigm shift at a certain moment as well that makes things possible. And in the States, a lot of the things we did, uh, which no one ever, I, you know, I'd get, what are you, crazy? We're not going to do that. Or, you know, I'd call somebody. But now it's sort of done routinely. Collaboration in the States between nonprofits and the biggest news organization is commonplace. And it, it was based on one thing we were able to do and brought people stories they were not even aware of. And if you're a journalist, or you're working in a news organization, you know, even if you're the biggest one in the United, United States or I hope here, and a small group of people bring you a story, that's the door opener. It's the story. It's always got to come back to the story. So in that process, I mean, those earlier traditions that were around about public interest journalism that go back decades. Do they help to sort of set up this, this kind of new moment around public interest and public service? Well, in the States, you had a, a foundations and others who believed in, in it, you know, as the, the, one of the pillars. And I think what we're seeing now in the States, when you have authoritarians try and move, there are four things they're mainly going to go after the legislative, the judiciary, law enforcement, and the press. And in the United States right now, the most, the biggest obstacle, if you want to call it that in a way, to what our president is doing is the press. Because there's been a lot of caving in elsewhere. So the, for again, it's, to me it's an example of the, the really crucial role that information plays. And historically, the worst governments not only eliminate the journalists are those who speak out. They, the control of information is really crucial <coughs> to controlling the population. Well, Alice, moving to you, can you tell us a little bit about you know, kind of your formation and yeah, you know, sure. what motivates you? I can work backwards from the Panama Papers. Pentagon. Oh, Panama. Panama, Panama Papers. <laughs> much less glamorous than the Pentagon Papers, whereby my editor said, come to your computer and bring enough clothes for a month. You will not leave, ever. <laughs> not as much enigma or mystery around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I started actually a completely different trajectory uh, to Robert. I started um, journalism in Wagga Wagga, 
um, a small regional area for anyone who doesn't know um, at the ABC and then worked up through the ranks of the ABC and um, uh, went to Columbia grad school and freelanced from there and was also involved in some investigative projects there and then went to work for an organization a startup called Fusion um, which is now spectacularly collapsed it happens as you know um, but we, uh, one of the big things that I learned from doing uh, investigative journalism in the United States is that the huge difference between and, and the influence um, and the impact that the law that the laws have on the content, which is something that I didn't appreciate before I spent time there. Um, coming back to Australia, I've recently come back. Um, less than a year ago um, to work at background briefing and I it's stark the restrictions on us as journalists um, defamation laws we don't have the First Amendment um, which is not helpful um, our freedom of information laws are a lot more restrictive um, we have access to far less information the government has a, a big hold on documents and information that journalists have access to. Um, Subjudice laws, for better or for worse, are a lot more restrictive for journalists. So one of the things that I've appreciated coming back is um, how amazing it is to do journalism in the United States compared to here, um, and how much harder it is for us to tell stories. I know we're talking about impact and engagement and um, and um, trying to get people interested in investigative journalism and the stories that we do right. and I have realized coming back that it's hard to tell stories with all these restrictions around us here yeah so I recall now in uh, we had Michael Schutzen the sort of distinguished journalism scholar a couple of years ago talk to us about the, the freedom of information in the US and the kind of you know, the background and stuff. I was based in Florida and the access to information was incredible. Yeah. I did um, a project there. I just put in a freedom of information request, um, a FOIA, we call it in the States, um, to one particular police department to get the arrest records for the last 10 years um, because there were anecdotes that um, police were targeting black people and there was this huge stop and frisk program in a place called Miami Gardens. And a DVD landed on my desk a week later with a decade's worth of arrest records with names, ages, reasons for arrests, um, latitude and longitude, like the exact location where these people... And it painted a picture of discrimination and targeting of black people over a 10-year period. We don't have access to that information here. Well, I mean, could you say a little bit more about that, Alice? Because, I mean, is it the case that Robert was sort of saying that, you know, part of uh, what you were forced to do, right, is the sort of having little, not having any resources, and that being, you know, the kind of parent of necessity. I mean, uh, one of the Australians' national myth is a kind of like you know, making do, right, that we may not mm. have all the resources, but we do canny things. We're definitely that, making do. Does that help us, <laughs> you know, are there other uh, creative things that come out of... You know, not to take away. Desperation? We need frameworks like that to actually make 
you know, in a democratic society to have that access to information for citizens, particularly for journalists, but yeah. Look, I work with a very small team um, of incredibly hardworking journalists. We put 45 minutes of investigative radio out every week right. with a team of six people. Like, it's incredible. They work around the clock um, every day, seven days a week to do this, mm. and they use all of the resources they have at their hands. Mm. It'd be really nice to have some more resources. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of innovation. We find creative solutions to many of our problems. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, dude, so. Okay. Well, let me ask you, I wanted to just ask, to ask a little bit more about um, the impact aspect of this. And there's a sense in which, um, you know, impact has, we've, we've themed it here as the kind of new bottom line. And there's been a lot of discussion, I suppose, and debate as well about the role of impact and the kind of fit of, say, impact with entrepreneurial journalism, mm -hmm. you know. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, is it, is it the kind of new normal and are there, are there kind of issues about that and particularly about what is impact and then what becomes would still be important journalism but is not impactful enough? Well, it's a very, it's a huge range of things. And the reason, again, if any of you are journalists, if you think about it, our metric of success is not, again, revenue or, or even traffic or eyeballs. And again, we partner a lot with major news organizations and small ones. But it's really capturing and be able to show that the stories we do lead to change. And it could be a huge macro change in national laws. Uh, and I, I can give you some examples, it's easier to explain, but we, we looked at, uh, and there's a lot of computer-assisted reporting, what we call data analysis, which I cannot ex you know, do at all, but you know, using tools that engineers use to, who write code, basically. And in the States, we do get access to records. We obtained and asked for every opioid prescription that the Veterans Administration, who treat our men and women who serve, over a 10-year period in the States, because we have this huge opioid epidemic and people are dying everywhere uh, of a, overdoses and becoming addicted. And what we've, we've got over 30 million prescriptions and the people who know how to analyze it showed that over a 10 year period, the number of prescriptions given by the VA to veterans had gone up over 300%. But what we were able to do is take it down to every hospital and we, and we focused on a place that was called Candyland because so many prescriptions were given. So the impact of that story was huge, they, they removed the doctors, they, they, the VA really began, they, they changed a lot of their procedures, but there was great, you know, a lot of things happened, but this was the kind of thing what happened. One of the things that happened, and this gets to what I was saying earlier, that the Republican senator from the state of Wisconsin, which had one of the worst hospitals, they, he came to this place where the VA was, and he held a big community meeting, and there were like 1,500 people in this hall, and he stood up in front of everybody, and this is a Republican center, and he held up a story in one of the newspapers we had partnered with wrote it, and he held it up and he said, we're here today because of the stories done by the Center for Investigative Reporting, and what their work shows is the role and the crucial role of the press in democracy. Now, when I could tell that story to people who gave us funding, it was huge. That was a macro impact. A micro-impact, we did a story called Rape in the Fields about women who picked food in the United States, who were mainly immigrants, they didn't speak English, who were repeatedly sexually abused and raped. Now, to get women to go on camera, especially from Latin culture or any culture, is brutal, but we were able to do it. 
And we had an event after this story came out, which created an uproar. And I was sitting next to a woman who'd, who'd been raped, and, and she didn't speak English well, and we were, happened to be at lunch together because we'd brought a convening of a lot of the people who were involved to, to look for a solution, which is also very important. And she turned to me, and I, I turned to her, and I said, I want to thank you for having the courage to do what you did. It really made a difference. And she said, she hit my arm, and she said, no, 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 I want to thank that you. And I said, well, I didn't do anything. You know, she said, no, no, not you, the journalists, because the worst thing in my life became the best thing. Now, when I could tell that story as a micro, that, that woman's life was changed completely because she became a spokeswoman and what had been the worst thing in her life literally made her someone who could go and speak to high school students and tell her story. So those two examples, the macro from a U.S. senator to a woman who had been sexually abused, are different measures of impact, but types of things that we would capture and, and tell people. So I could sit here all night and talk about that, sure. but it'll get boring as hell. But that really was, again, creating a culture where not only what we were doing were really important stories, but capturing what we did and showing how it made a difference. So again, when your reward and people are basically funding you to do important journalism is they want you to make a difference, it's very important. And you know, we, we try to be, and we are nonpartisan. It's difficult in the United States right now. But over the course of, if you looked at the body of work, you'd see that it's not about who's in power. It's, I mean, it is about who's in power. It's not what party they're part of. One of the big things that I think um, CIR has done that uh, a lot of places haven't done is uh, you've developed an impact tracker. So journalists, they're not KPIs as such, but it's a way of quantitatively measuring the impact of particular stories. And in an age where um, a lot of the focus for whether you're a public or a private media organisation is on page views and um, metrics of this nature or that nature, actually creating a tool and a way of measuring the impact of the journalism I think is really powerful and actually implementing that as well. And I think that's something that you guys have particularly done very well and uh, Australian media would really benefit from right. doing as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, in conversations with Australian journalists, I've heard you know, a lot of people say that now, what you're saying, that there's a sense of when you are reporting, mm. you're much more mindful of those. So is that, I mean, and in part of what you're saying, Robert, it sounds like you're able to draw the net more widely around impact measures, and perhaps that's part of it because the rest of the media industry is also looking at, you know, whether it's page views, clicks, likes, and so on. Well, yeah, I We're mean, talking about a broader concept. Yeah, it's impossible, or I think it's pretty impossible to figure out if you, if you report on something, you see a documentary, how do you measure someone's thinking changing? Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's really another crucial piece of this is not to do stories that are simply data and, you know, boring as hell, but create characters and have narrative storytelling and also empathy. You know, I think one of the challenges is identifying with people when you're in a better situation who may have a problem, especially if they don't look like you or come from the same place you come from. So it's, again, in today's world, I think these are really important issues as well as to get people really outraged sometimes by exposing something, especially if you, and think about how it's going to be, who is it relevant to? And, you know, the broader the relevance, the more people can identify with an issue, the stronger the story is going to be. And one of the, one of the ways I um, burrowed my way into the ICIJ for the Panama Papers was I had been following their journalism 
um, very closely because I was passionate about the things that they were reporting on, but I found uh, the writing impenetrable. As a journalist, I would read the articles and I would I would get four paragraphs down and I don't understand what the hell this story is about. And so the way that I sold Fusion's participation in that particular project, which um, they've now sort of very much taken on board, I think, um, is I will make your story interesting to people and I will make them care about this. <laughs> Which, I mean, you can do all the brilliant journalism in the world, but if people don't understand what the hell you're talking about and people yeah. don't engage with it and don't relate to the characters and don't feel empathy with the characters or the people you're talking about, then um, I feel like you haven't uh, entirely done your job as an investigative journalist. So that sort of communicative aspect is really crucial. It, it sounds like journalism is borrowing in some ways from television or and uh, and narrative nonfiction. Yeah. I mean, you read a New Yorker article and you become mm. absorbed and you can't stop reading it, and that's the sort of journalism and that's the sort of writing that I think investigative journalists sort of shied away from for a very long time, and especially here in Australia. I mean. We are um, fearful of uh, engaging for fear of losing our impartiality or our objectivity when, in fact, you, um, you bring more people to the story Sorry. if you emotionally engage with it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in some ways maybe it had a, not a bad name, but new journalism, the trends before, decades before, that used some of those techniques um, were not necessarily you know, widely shared. But also, I just wanted to ask you also more. I mean, some of the some of the kind of models and the concepts from elsewhere. Think of say your um, centre of investigative reporting, Robert, and elsewhere. How do they translate into the Australian context? You know, the kind of uh, not millions and million dollar question or questions, but that that sense in which you're able to get some big donors. You mean the uh, the the business, the business models? Models, I suppose. I mean. We were having a conversation. A about the social function, but the business model part of it, you know, is that is that flying here? How's that working for us? We have uh, lots of great experiments, right? Right. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, a lot of them using digital platforms as well. The Global Post, the Global was it? Post, lots of, you know, rise and fall or, or organisations perhaps represented here trying to find a new way forward. But so I, I have a very good friend who was an editor of New Matilda for a very long time. Perfect example, she struggled for a decade to get people to contribute and tried all these different sort of revenue streams and... It was just an ongoing struggle. I think there are a number of factors at play here. One is, um, a very big one is um, defamation and the way that we engage with the law uh, in Australia. And another, I mean, we don't have a a culture of philanthropy here. Uh, We have different tax laws. We don't have this sort of, we never got the Trump bump. Um, we don't have this sort of class of people who want to give money to uh, and who believe in journalism and its role in democracy who are willing to just sort of donate money. There's a a couple of people who I can think of, but um, that's not been part of our institutional complex in Australia. So I think um, from that perspective, 
the sort of not-for-profit philanthropic model has not thrived. The other thing that we were talking about before is if you want to do brave investigative journalism in Australia, you need to be backed by a huge institution. You need to be backed by a massive corporation or a public institution. And um, I've been thinking a lot about it. And I actually, we were saying this, I think... Uh, the place for this kind of centre would be a university. Like you, sure. I, I think in Australia, that's where our business model lies, and our future for non-profit investigative journalism lies. It's in the universities, yeah. of which there's a lot more scope, I think. Yeah, to, you know, to really look at kind of also if they get sued. <laughs> Large <laughs> turn, deeper pockets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. All that. Having a more philanthropic turn as well. Um. So. Um, in terms of the kind of collaboration, so one of the one of the sort of accents, I suppose, is about the importance now of collaboration. Mm. That that's it's that is really becoming, and that's perhaps internationally. That is that that sounds like that's the case across different countries. I've been having conversations forms. with a managing editor at Reveal recently about collaborating across the seas. That right. it's it's happening. Well, I think it, it leverages everybody's skills and it, it makes sense, and it also creates potential protection. If you're not a big organization, you work with a bigger organization, you know, we indemnify what we do. But I, I do think, and I, again, I'm no expert on what's going on here, but I do know that there are a lot of very passionate journalists. And if, you know, in the States or here, if you had one wealthy individual even who was willing to invest a small amount of their fortune, it could be a couple of million dollars a year, and you got 10 or 15 people together, and you had pro bono legal help, you can make a difference. And I think, that, you know, I, I'm, you know, where I came from, believe me, uh, in terms of when there were six people and, you know, we were in an office literally that had no heat or air conditioning in the summer, we were a real nonprofit. You know, I believe you can do it. It's, you have to think, you know, not about why you can't do it, you have to think about why you can do it or just don't even think about why you can't do it and just go ahead. But, you know, but what, again, the model that really began the work in the States wasn't simply that we were geniuses or had, you know, that were, you know, we had good stories. And I'm sure, I know, without knowing the, what I would do here, but there are really right targets. And it's really <laughs> would take some courage and, and skilled people and passionate people and with some financial support. And even if... You know, you're not doing this for the other. When you do collaborations, it's not for the big media company. It's really for the public, and the public will respond. If, especially if you're doing something that crosses potential political divide, but also is relevant to the people who live in a community or an issue that affects a lot of people. And I think if you do that, success begets success, and you can't be ignored. And I think that's going to be the thing that may change the playing field here, because I've been here. In Australia, about a week, I've been in Perth and Adelaide and Melbourne here, and I've been doing this kind of thing in a bunch of places. And one thing I know for sure, there are a lot of people who are interested in this, and a lot of talented journalists who are unhappy or out of work. And that was part of what happened in the States. A lot of really good journalists lost their jobs, and they didn't want to go into PR or go into the, you know, retire. So there's similar issues, uh, and it... So it, it, I think it can be done, but you know, where's that one person or a couple of people who are going to believe this is important? Mm. 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 Uh, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the call's out. The call is out. <laughs> so, so what the, I mean, one of the things that, that we do here, obviously, is, is try and educate you know, future journalists. So 
What do those careers look like, I suppose? Or, you know, what, what do the working lives of journalists look like? From well, now? At We're the coming, age of 22, you get this. to be involved in the Pentagon Papers. That's pretty yeah, cool. That's lucky. <laughs> I also delivered them on my bike before that. <laughs> so. My stuff was much less glamorous. Well, I'll, I'll take the first shot at that. I'm not a pessimist, as you probably can tell. Uh, certainly get, once, I'm not like even killed either. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, again, the type of people who went into journalism when I did it and today are the same. They're, you know, like I said earlier, they're passionate, they're creative, they're really mission driven. The skill sets I've seen in some of the younger people are astonishing, and the ability now, because of the internet, to self publish or do something that gets attention is, is, is real. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I keep mentioning, I've mentioned a couple of times, some of you may know uh, Now This News, which is a Facebook-based short video thing, which started with a couple of people in San Francisco. They get maybe 80, 100 million views a month. I'm not sure how much money they're making, but it's brilliant. And I just think the creativity of the newest generation of potential journalists and the ability to tell stories in different ways is sort of limitless. You know, if you think about what's happened in the last 20 years in terms of technology, which is all, you know, if you're around here in 50 years from now, this is going to be like remarkable trying to figure this out, both the good and the bad, because the American pro president's the biggest and most important and loudest publisher in the world through tweets, and who would have thought of that? But at the same time, I do think there's a role, and you know, you can tell I'm sort of evangelical about this, uh, the role is there, and I, I really encourage people. And again, I see incredible intelligence and energy coming out of it. And part of it is because you, a, a short video you produce, an animation, a podcast, boom, you know, you can, if it's good and it's a good story, you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I, I would, I don't discourage people from going into it. I can't tell you where all the jobs are right now, but I do know that there are opportunities. I think um, I would echo that as well. And one of the things that I've noticed about the younger people coming through is that the, um, the core values of what makes a brilliant journalist have not changed. So this idea that I am part of democracy, I speak truth to power, I am fair, I am accurate, I am respectful. I feel like those values have not changed. The storytelling might have changed. It might be a meme or a gif or something short or something incredibly long. Um, uh, but what makes a brilliant journalist is, is the same as what it ever was, I think, um, from my perspective anyway. And in terms of what a career trajectory looks like, it's tough. It's really, really tough. I mean, <coughs> one of the, coming back to Australia from being in the States, I have a newfound love and respect for the ABC, especially um, in the regions, because one of the things that um, has been lost in America through um, the, the loss of staff and revenues at newspapers is the local reporting and the local investigative, brilliant papers who would do brilliant local, very important, important investigative journalism has been lost, especially in, I was in Miami, um, looking at the Miami Herald these days and they still do brilliant work, but compared to 15 years ago, and you see the effect on democracy there. You see things going through that shouldn't go through. You see it's sort of 
uh, civic place. Um, and one of the things that I appreciate coming back here is the role of regional radio. Um, and I think that is a, uh, something that we really need to hold on to here in Australia, is the role of, um, especially, I mean, the ABC still has a very strong regional presence and, and relishing that and, and developing it and doing more strong local journalism because I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah, I, think, uh, I mean, I think that's an interesting kind of comment, I think, Alice, because one, I mean, one of the other things I suppose that I was wondering about is that sense now in which if you have something like regional radio going through, you have this ability for people, I suppose, to find their news on social media, which they are, and then to come back to other sources, right? Because I wondered about the part of, I think, what, what makes some of the work you've been doing so successful is the can you use the, the kind of mix of creativity and technology mm. and purpose and vision coming together. But the other um, you know, big issue of the day as it's perceived is to say, well, okay, our tech can be our friend, but tech is a problem too, right? People are getting, we get a lot of news from social media, that can be fabulous, that can give you reach. But where do the kind of work that you're doing, is that a niche within that kind of landscape? What's the, what's the, is it really important, as you're saying, that you, you need this complement? Do you need a complementarity between different kinds of innovative kind of news well, look, offering and then more You look at the BuzzFeed um, business model. I mean, they started, the, the guys who started that openly admit that we started this uh, on cat memes. Yeah. Right, clickbait. But they, uh, I remember hearing them speak when they, when they were first starting to get into journalism, and everyone was like, "What is Buzzfeed doing? Doing journalism? They do cat memes." And but it was a very direct uh, trajectory for them. They were like, "We create the revenue stream, and then we also do the journalism." Yeah, the Guardian kind of rivers of gold in a different way. Exactly. The Guardian had car sales yeah. um, ads. You know, it's you need that revenue stream and that's yeah. all philanthropy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed exploding watermelon was, I think it's 60 million views or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, if you can build a model where one entertainment supports journalism, great. Uh, that, you know, it's hard to do even like, you know, when I, but in big newsrooms of the past, only a small group of people really were doing the investigative reporting. <coughs> Uh, and that, you know, for us is a pure play, but, you know, again, it's, it's part of what I think, you know, it's really the most important part of it sometimes. We knew we had a problem at Fusion when the highest viewed video was um, our documentary on, it was an investigative documentary on sex trafficking. Right. And it was an investigative, and the CEO was like, we have an issue. When <laughs> investigative work is the highest viewed thing on your network, you've got issues. <laughs> but I just wanted to finally ask, I suppose, both our guests to say, if there was one thing or perhaps two, you know, one or two things perhaps you thought, you know, could really make a difference to the environment, what would they be? What kind of... The journalism environment or the world? Or the, yeah, the climate change journalism. or... A... <laughs> does sound rather big, doesn't it? <laughs> I meant to really put, to take, you know, this project, I suppose, forward. You know, what would be that kind of initiative or measure that you Money! Well, <laughs> dollars or... But also uh, a group of passionate, creative people, maybe they're in this room, coming together and really figuring out and saying, you know, let's figure this out together. Mm. And also... 
when you have a plan or an idea, you know, see if you can get some funding. Uh, again, if, 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 or, or just do a holy shit, excuse me story uh, that really gets attention. Um, you know, some of this has happened. And again, there's obstacles here that we don't have in the States. But there's clearly talent and passion and creative people who can come together who are journalists and maybe make a difference. Thank you. Alice, do you want to I would, uh, further to the point of money, um, <laughs> I would echo that. And also young people with lots of energy mm. coming together, thinking, working it out and just doing it rather than sitting around waiting for institutions that may or may not be functional to help them along. Just do it yourselves. I think that's um, that's really important. The other thing that I have, I would also say is fine. If you're a young journalist, there are so many amazing, experienced, wise, especially investigative journalists in Australia who could mentor you. Go and find a mentor. I think Walkley can help you then. And I'll say the last thing: have fun. Also have fun, yeah, yeah. Have fun. That's a wonderful <laughs> note. Well, look, on that note, can I just do some thank yous? So, firstly, can I thank uh, Anna Burns and her team from Sydney Ideas for making Can I thank Lauren and her colleagues at the Walkley Foundation? Unfortunately, I uh, just overlooked playing the inspirational video from the Walkley Foundation, but um, we can see this is an incredibly important institution. Video on the website for you to look at. But um, to just pay some tribute and thanks to the Walkley for making this possible and for the important role you play, I think, in you know, really trying to safeguard journalism as an institution. And finally, our two speakers tonight, really, um, here we've been, I think, privileged to really hear um, some, some experiences and some insights and also some optimism, which is fabulous. So, Robert and Alice, thank you very much. And Robert, thank you. Just for Thank you to yourselves as well very much. Thank you. Enjoy your evening. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.